Hello, and welcome to Chad's ADHD 365 podcast. This program is sponsored by Tris Pharma. Tris Pharma uses Liquid XR technology to develop innovative medicines that address unmet patient needs, including the treatment of ADHD and related disorders. Tris Pharma is dedicated to keeping patients with ADHD and their families educated and connected. Visit www.trispharmaproducts.com to find educational resources and more information on Tris Pharma's treatment options for patients six years and older with ADHD. Hello and welcome to ADHD 365. I'm your host, Susan Boone, and with me today is Dr. Mark Burton. Dr. Burton is a developmental pediatrician based in New York and also a mindfulness teacher. Welcome, Dr. Burton. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about yourself? Um, well, thank you for being, inviting me to be here again. It's always great to see you. I don't, I'm not sure off the bat that I would think I need to add anything more than that. I do developmental pediatrics in New York. I try to integrate mindfulness into um, practice when it seems appropriate. And I I'm, think we can just jump in. Looking forward to you know seeing where things go today. Okay, great. Well, my first question, does poor diet cause ADHD? That's a great question and a frequent one that people start with. But really, um, bottom line is ADHD is one of the most uh, genetically programmed disorders out there. And poor diet certainly does not cause ADHD. You know, there is a little bit of research about not even very definitive research suggesting some nutritional deficiencies might complicate it. There's a tiny bit of research about things like food dyes influencing ADHD, like they don't cause it, but potentially can exacerbate it. And I, there is a little bit of research as well saying things like um, omega-3s might help a little bit around the edges, but in spite of all the online chatter, uh, nutrition does not cause ADHD. Thank you. But can ADHD lead to poor eating habits? Well, that's a much more interesting and loaded question and really one I think worth looking at. I think the impact of ADHD is kind of underestimated in many different situations. So I think a good starting point in really thinking about ADHD overall is that it's not specifically an attention disorder. It's a disorder of a much bigger skill set called executive function, which has to do with our life management skills. Um, and I'm not going to give a, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on that today, but the point is, is that it certainly affects many, many different life habits pretty directly. And it's been linked with things like overeating, difficulty with becoming overweight, binge eating, and eating disorders. So, um, so definitely ADHD, you know, can increase your risk of various challenges around food and eating. I think one thing that's also related to that in a very subtle way, I'm not sure it's studied as directly, is also that when you have a child who may be, um, for the subgroup of kids with ADHD, it's not all of them who are really challenging behaviorally when they're young, you know, fighting over food may just be the last thing on your plate. You know, you're sort of exhausted and overwhelmed as a parent to begin with. So it just becomes that much harder to even introduce healthy eating in younger kids. And that may be a piece of a family dynamic also. Does eating an unhealthy diet have an effect on ADHD symptoms? Is good nutrition important? Well, I think good health as a whole is quite important for ADHD. So again, just to put it in bigger context briefly and then come back to nutrition, you know, ADHD quite often undermines healthy habits overall in ways that can make your ADHD worse, you know, and some of that can do with poor sleep. 
Uh, some of that can do with exercise and certainly with nutrition. Anything that helps you with your overall health and well-being is going to help your, your, you know, your overall ability to manage any given day. So, like I mentioned a moment ago, there, there, you know, there's a little bit of research saying that you know food dyes and particular deficiencies could theoretically exacerbate things. Um, but I think overall, the more important context, if the goal for all of us is is you know health and well-being in some broad sense, um, we do know that ADHD affects healthy living habits as a whole, including in, in the three I usually summarize are eating, sleeping, and nutrition. And that if we can get a handle on that, where you know we'll, it's sort of like a domino effect of we'll feel better, which will help us around some of our ADHD symptoms more specifically, maybe, and which will also um, when we feel better, it also just makes it easier to do the things we need to do to manage ADHD. So there's probably a direct effect of healthy living on some ADHD symptoms, as well as just increasing our capacity to you know, handle the fact that ADHD calls for an awful lot of you know, persistence and self-management just to stay on top of it. And it'll help with that too. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between ADHD and disordered eating, binge eating, eating for stimulation, anorexia, et cetera? Well, I think we, you know, I'll, I'll Again, I'll put in the big context first and then specifics. I mean, you know, when you look at, I think that there's several different aspects of ADHD that, that affect eating overall. You know, I think we haven't touched on that yet. So I would say overall, you have uh, on the one hand, I think sometimes it's easier to break things up a little bit around, you know, some of the impacts of ADHD. You have the kind of old school kind of core symptoms of ADHD that most people are familiar with. You know, and you can easily, you know, easily see, you know, in a shorter talk like today, I won't explain it too much because I just hopefully, you know, the, the, the link is clear, but how things like distractibility and impulsiveness, you know, can directly affect how people, how people eat, you know, that's, um, you know, so there's that direct effect of some of the foundational symptoms of ADHD. You know, the, the more important concept, I think, for anyone living with ADHD is to start really understanding the idea of executive function in like a useful way. It shouldn't feel like as some sort of wonky scientific thing, but it is ADHD. So the better you can understand executive function, the better you can manage it. You know, executive function includes uh, two other components of life that directly affect eating. Uh, one part of it is organization planning time management so that you know, if you are kind of under planning things and, 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 you know, falling behind in different ways, you know, that affects things like what foods are available when it's time to eat that affects, you know, what foods are available at home or meal planning, all these things that start accumulating over time. So the organization and planning piece of executive function can affect how you eat. And then a huge one, which I know my friend, uh, Roberto, Roberto Olivardia, who talks about this all the time, also talks about um, frequently is that ADHD affects emotional self-management skills and emotional reactivity and managing our emotions is clearly something that's very linked to eating for, for many of us. So, um, so you do have this baseline of, you know, ways ADHD affects eating. And then, you know, ADHD probably, you know, as a subset of all of that, although, you know, I think it's impossible to draw, you know, to say it's exactly Exactly, you know, A leads to B specifically, but almost certainly because of some combination of all of that, ADHD has been shown to link to more specific eating disorders, also like binge eating disorder and, and anorexia, even another you know specific eating disorder. So ADHD increases your risk of more severe eating disorders, also. So, Dr. Burton, what should parents watch out for in their children with ADHD as far as issues with eating? When should they become concerned? I think that's a great question. 
and you know, it's hard to sh- short end something that's such a broad topic, but I think, I mean, to some degree, like a lot of things in pediatrics, it isn't necessarily different than other kids. It's just a matter of knowing what to look for. Like a lot of, you know, typical development's going to happen with or without ADHD and ADHD might increase the risk, but the, you know, the answer isn't all that different. So, you know, I think sometimes I think the, the simplest way to shorthand the difference between what's typical development and what's not as simple as it seems is that, you know, anything within the range of typical development shouldn't be causing, you know, what the, the word you use in the textbooks often is impairment. So you shouldn't be, you know, causing yourself a chronic problem of some kind. And, you know, that's where the judgment lies. But I think it means that if there's um, certainly physical signs of any problem, clearly kids need to be evaluated, you know, extremes of weight. Emotionally, you know, I think it has more to do with some of the more disordered patterns you know, you see around things like anorexia and binge eating, which, you know, the, the end point is weight, but some of those signs you might pick up on earlier if somebody, you know, just through observation that somebody's eating seems extreme. And then some of this, I think, which, which is, you know, probably something we're going to touch on today some, some as well, really just comes from being sort of trying to stay proactive and ahead of it through trying to create an atmosphere of just, you know, balanced, healthy eating habits from the get-go. And I think that is, um, you know, lots of kids are fussy about food and want junk food and want sugar and all those things. And that's part of life. And, you know, um, it's one of the challenges as a parent is how to sort of navigate through all of that and get some sort of vaguely balanced eating habits in place anyway. What are some of the ways parents can encourage good eating habits? Clearly, the most important one in most households, because it's, a, you know, it gets ahead of the more challenging things we, you know, we may or may not touch on today. But, you know, what you model is sort of the starting point for many, many different things, even, you know, more challenging things in ADHD. You want to teach someone how to manage their emotions. You know, it starts from how they're seeing everybody else in the house manage their emotions. Um, so when it comes to food and eating, it's very similar. I mean, you, you know, you don't want, you know, it, it really, it's, it's really hard, particularly around food to say, you know, don't do this, but, you know, you should eat this way, but I'm eating this way. So, you know, modeling is vital as well. You know, that relates to something. There was a nutritionist who was part of my training. And um, it's in always the most um, nuanced in how we talk to people, I guess. But so, you know, I might bring this up differently, but certainly one of the early questions you would ask parents around, you know, some situations, but is just, but who does the shopping at home? And I think, um, you know, that's, you don't want to judge yourself for in it and everyone has their foods they like and don't like, but to some degree, that's true of just, you know, you want to just raise kids in a household that is balanced, whatever that looks like to you. You know, it's, I mean, in the end, like a lot of parts of, uh, Science in general, but certainly health and well-being. You know, there's no yes/no answer about what how to eat as much as just seeking some kind of balance. And a lot of that is just like what's around when you're growing up, and um, and not being afraid of setting limits. Sometimes, I mean, in our, I don't want to get too. There's such extremes when it comes to eating. You know, I can only talk in general. I mean, clearly, I'm not talking about situations where people are truly lacking food. You know, that's a whole other, you know, sad and and you know, epic topic to touch on. But in but in sort of mainstream America, you know, most of this country, there's just a, you know, excess availability of, you know, processed, unhealthy stuff around all over the place nowadays, including school lunches quite often. And every, you know, a friend of mine who's needs to address a, a, you know, who's trying to, because of health reasons, address his health in this way, you know, said, you know, after he was talking to his nutritionist, he went to the supermarket and realized that pretty much if he left the produce, produce aisle, there was nothing that was particularly helpful available to him. And he was being a little extreme. Um, but it does come down to, you know, that idea of, of, you know, kids 
partly because they have immature executive function in the first place. Like they're with or without ADHD, they're not the grownups yet. You know, they're not ready to make big, long standing decisions in life. Ice cream is always better. So, um, so that's a long roundabout way of saying, you know, it starts with sort of modeling and lifestyle and setting some boundaries when they're appropriate so that kids just um, have a routine day to day level of health. I mean, I'm going to just pause there, but that's where I would start. So let's talk about mindfulness and eating. What is mindful eating? Let me just sort of normalize that to start and then I'll jump in. I mean, in the bigger picture, you know, which because mindful is just being oversold as a buzzword everywhere. So I think actually I'll start with my favorite thing to say about mindfulness, which is um, it's just a word. And one of my favorite sort of teachings around mindfulness that drew me into even studying it is the concept one of the teachers said that ask of anything you hear, is it true? So when it comes to mindfulness, there's a whole premise of like, don't take any of it on faith, you know, just like listen. And if it sounds right, you know, make it real for yourself. And, you know, that's really important to me because, you know, I'm not saying it's a, you know, it's a quick fix for anything, but I do think it's a practical add-on, you know, practical help for many, many things. So when it comes to, you know, mindfulness, when I was organizing my thoughts for today, I think there's two different things we can think of, you know, in general, Mindfulness is a useful intention for any situation, and and there is some benefit to just practicing that way. So in general, what mindfulness means is trying to live life with more awareness of what's actually going on as it's happening. You know, with you know, there's different ways to define it, but kind of with less judgmental reactivity. You know, like this is what's happening. I, if I like it, I can enjoy that and try to manage that well. And if I don't like it, you know, I'm still not going to like it, which is a subtlety with mindfulness. It doesn't mean I'm suddenly going to like it. It means I'm still better off being aware of myself and not getting caught up in reactivity and, and trying to steer myself towards managing it well. And that clearly, 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 in fact, one of the most fundamental ways to start exploring mindfulness can be through food. Because if you look at that intention of living life with awareness, you know, where more in life do we just get lost in autopilot and not pay attention to what's actually going on? You know, in so many different ways in that, you know, when I often talk to kids about this, it's like, when you like a food, what do you tend to do? You know, you tend to just get so caught up in eating as much of it as you can possibly get your hands on that you sort of eat so quickly, you don't even taste it. You don't even enjoy it at all. Like when I lead mindful eating practices, one of the things I often hear is that, you know, people got more enjoyment out of far less chocolate than they normally eat because you just actually pay attention and it's not supposed to be forced or weird. You know, it's just that that's valuable in life. You know, during the pandemic, I've been talking to people a lot about how start of sustaining our resilience in life is that it's so easy to get caught up in the fact that things are going poorly all the time or seemingly going poorly all the time, I should say, that if we don't stop and pay attention to the positive stuff, we're going to, you know, going to burn ourselves out. You know, it's just an important part of life. And then the flip side, especially for kids, is if you you know have to eat something or are told you have to eat something you don't like, then what happens? Then you slow down and you pay so much attention to it that you're torturing yourself. You know, so there's so much around uh, eating that it can become a practice of just paying attention to what's actually going on, and it, it tends to um, you know again increase our enjoyment of eating quite often. And um, and then the second part of mindfulness, which is not as intuitive but is equally important, is that. As we start that process, one of the things we notice, which is clearly valuable when it comes to food and eating, is that we tend to get caught up in a lot of just like habitual reactions around everything we do. We just kind of, you know, this is how I eat. This is what I eat. You know, when I'm hungry, I just must do this. Or, you know, we have our preferences and they're all real and hard to change, but we're not always aware of them. And one of the examples I sometimes give around that, around food, 
which is just a just a valuable reflection on the difference between really difficult to change habits and something that actually is unchangeable. There are things in life that are unchangeable. Is that you can look at all the various reasons in life we're asked to fast for short amounts of time. So some people do it, you know, like for a medical reason, you know, you, you can't eat today because you're having a procedure tomorrow. And some people do it for religious reasons. So like if you're Jewish, Yom Kippur is coming up and you fast for 24 hours. And one thread you can look at among that is that, you know, you know, this is why it's called non-judgmental awareness, by the way. I'm not saying this is easy in any way. You can look at the fact that for 364 days a year, it feels like you know we've been fighting to eat healthy. All of us in different ways, probably our whole lives. You know, we all have things that are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that again. For 364 days a year, those things seem impossible to touch, and then all of a sudden, some doctor or you know at synagogue they say, well, tomorrow don't eat, and you're able to do it. Everyone does, right? You can, and it's miserable, and you're hungry, and it's unpleasant, but you don't add that second piece, which is the habitual thing you typically do when you're hungry. So, you know, it just shows that it's like, well, it's incredibly entrenched and difficult and we shouldn't judge ourselves for that, but it is doable, which is a subtlety that's worth exploring because, you know, it's the ability to live with something a little unpleasant without reacting to it. So when it comes to what you asked, which is like, what does mindful eating mean? It means in there's two sides of it, like I said. One is, is we certainly can just bring the intention to bring awareness to eating. You know, that is, uh, takes a lot of effort. It's something we aren't doing already, most of us, most of the time. So some of it is this, the intention to be aware of how we're eating. You know, little things like just eating more slowly leads to healthier eating just by nature. You know, you know, and there's lots of little tricks you can do that haven't, aren't meditation, but just like literally are logistical tricks you can do that help slow things down. Just be more aware of both eating while we're eating. And then equally importantly, you know, a big part of the practice of mindfulness is recognizing that when we slow down, we more easily connect with our best intentions. Like we know like the right thing to do a lot, awful lot of the time and lose touch with it. So, you know, as we're eating, we can be aware of, you know, why we're eating and how we're eating and and even one thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, mindful eating doesn't mean only giving attention to our food necessarily. You know, if we're eating with a friend or eating with our family, then being aware is being aware of that as fully as possible. You know, not on our phones or not, or catching ourselves if we're caught up with a work problem and just saying like, you know what, that is real. But right now, the most important thing is I'm having dinner with my kids and try to just give our full awareness to our kids. So when it comes to this broader idea of mindfulness, you know, part of it is the intention to eat with awareness, to make choices around food with awareness, you know, to examine, you know, am I eating because it looks good or am I eating because I'm hungry? And in a non-judgmental way, just try to explore all that. So that's the intentional side of it. And then the other part of it is that mindful eating can be a specific practice. So you can make a practice of it. You can develop these various traits that relate to mindfulness through eating. And that's the harder part of mindfulness, honestly. You know, it's basically like a gym program. The practice of mindfulness, the intention is, is through doing something over and over again. Anything we repeat over and over again becomes more accessible, becomes more part of life. You know, anything we choose not to do becomes less and less part of life, you know, again, within that range of what's possible. So a mindful eating practice is actually making a structured meditation of, you know, sitting with a sitting with something we're eating. Again, it's not meant to be forced, but it is meant to be structured, looking at just for a few minutes, all the different senses, basically, what, you know, sight and smell and taste. And, um, and it's a wonderfully enjoyable practice quite often. 
um, really, you know, gets us back in touch with something that we might go weeks or months without really paying that much attention to. You know, every once in a while, something we really like just sort of grabs our attention, but mostly we're not paying a whole lot of attention most of the time. And that's actually making mindful eating into, you know, an actual structured practice. Um, And the intention there, again, there's no doing it right or wrong, and we're going to get distracted and lose touch with our intentions. And all of that happens, you know, it's an important concept when it comes to mindfulness practice is, you know, there's no perfect, everyone has a hard time with it, with or without ADHD. But if we practice regularly, this concept of like, when something's going on, this is what it's like to give it our full awareness and attention, it becomes more and more part of life. And that's so mindful eating as a practice involves, you know, specifically choosing like, some people sometimes recommend like at the start of a meal, just do it for a couple of minutes, you know, or a couple of, just like, just bring our awareness fully. And then, you know, just go back to eating like normal again. So that's what mindful practice is more specifically. Thank you. Now, when there's low executive functioning, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, a kid with low executive functioning right. or a teen or an adult, right? do you have any tips on how to practice this mindful eating, um, you know, and encourage good nutrition when either you're a parent dealing with kids mm-hmm. with low executive functioning or, or an individual dealing with low executive functioning? Well, again, I think those are two different. Those are two different answers. I mean, one specific to mindfulness and one general to ADHD. So, you know, since I was talking about mindfulness, I guess I'll start with that one, which is that I mean, part part of it with mindfulness is just you know normalizing it, like just what is what is. So, in other words, it's not supposed to be perfect, and no one can focus their attention fully on anything for very long with or without ADHD, and all of that's fine. So, so that um, in fact. You know, I think that's true for any meditation practice or any mindfulness meditation practice is just if you're going to stick with it, you have to recognize that it's fine if your mind's busy the whole time. It's fine if you're restless. The practice is the practice and that's all that matters. So when it comes to mindful eating, I think the, the simplest way to start is to say, you know, just let go of any expectations. It isn't supposed to be anything in particular except practice. So that's probably the core part of it. And then the second part of it is for anybody who gets started with mindfulness and meditation, it's forming a new habit, which is really hard. So you have to give yourself a leeway to screw up a lot, and b if it's if you're going to be successful with habit formation, it requires uh, because it's not a habit initially a lot of structure and reinforcement and planning. So if it's your intention to practice mindful eating for a while, um, making any new plan stick if it's you know at the start means you know scheduling it setting alarms or asking someone to partner with you or to remind with you, you know, remind you of it, just like any other habit in life. And then you can take a, you know, in the, in the bigger premise, which I don't know that we have time for today, you know, the overall practice of mindfulness is meant to spill over into everyday life in a way that just makes you um, more aware of what's going on and work with habit and reactivity um, in any situation so that um, over time, you might be able to start catching yourself when you're making impulsive decisions or habitual decisions around food. You know, one habit-related change, I like working with nutrition that I've found very successful over time, actually taught to me by the same nutritionist I mentioned earlier, is um, it's, you know, the, really most of the research from the way I understand it says, you know, dietary change is best done, you know, as a gradual thing towards a healthy lifestyle. You know, healthy lifestyles can stick. Anything extreme, people tend to give up on pretty quick. And one of the nicest ways to drift towards that is really just like find one, just, you know, like, Find one thing that's kind of habitual and you'd like to change and just change that one habit, you know, like 
whatever it is, switch from potato chips to pretzels or, you know, and even, even with kids, you can often make those little changes and just look at the household as a whole and just like one step at a time in small ways, just recognize, oh, that's just a shopping habit or that's, you know, we can shift that. And it's usually tolerated that way. So that's the, you know, on the mindfulness side of things, it's about being, you know, in a patient, non-judgmental way, being self-aware enough to recognize things like, you know, we tend to eat with each of our senses at different parts in the day, you know, but obviously it's healthier to try to come back to, you know, am I hungry or not most of the time, which is hard, but we can start exploring that, you know, I'm not, and that's all the bigger picture of mindfulness. You know, the practical side of ADHD is just recognizing that anything, when you're working with kids in particular, is that anything that comprehensively addresses ADHD will, by nature, make it easier to manage eating and eating habits. So, you know, certainly, you know, there are, when it comes to the mindfulness part of things, um, anything having to do with mindfulness in kids, you have to sort of just make, make playful and adapt to their age, or just, you know, just sort of, you just, it's, it's never, um, that radical as much as just understanding where they are developmentally. And, you know, there's a, there's a great book, for example, called No Ordinary Apple, which is like a picture book for, you know, kids still reading picture books. And, and, you know, it's just eating an apple through the picture book and, you know, it's really guiding a mindful eating exercise. And uh, so there's ways you can bring it down to really young kids as long as you make it playful and engaging. However, you know, it's never, you know, mindfulness is something you put in the context of ADHD care. So if you work on, you know, the medications have been shown to help with with eating, particularly around binge eating, uh, you know, other areas of eating disorders, the medications can, you know, it's, it's a little complicated, can cause some problems, but you have to sort of medications can be a piece of it. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy can be a piece of developing the tools to manage all the ADHD, emotional and executive function issues that relate to eating. Um, and then the big one, I think every parent should focus on or, or should is a big word, but might benefit from focusing on is just recognizing that so much of getting a handle on ADHD is, you know, benefits from a sort of a parent training approach, not because parents are doing anything right or wrong, but because it's hard to manage ADHD and giving parents more tools so that they can manage the behavioral side of ADHD clearly helps with some of the eating stress that happens at home too. Absolutely. So what about when medications are in the picture and mm-hmm. sometimes some medications in some people can suppress appetite. If there's a co-occurring sleep disorder and some of the sleep medications that are given can also interfere with eating habits at night. Can you talk a bit about that and what parents and well, individuals can do? When it comes to you know medications with ADHD, I mean, I, I would think I would make you know, the starting point for me is that I think if you manage ADHD medications, you know, really, really persistently and push, you know, for try lots of different things, for most people, you can find a medication that has, you know, not necessarily zero, but minimal impact on appetite. So I do think it's important to start there, but I think sometimes really what does need to happen is a medication change, because even though it's frustrating, if you just keep working on the medication changes, it can be grueling. But if your appetite is really, really suppressed with the medications, you know, you're not only not hungry, but you don't want to really, you don't want to push somebody to eat when they're not hungry. That's not a great message either. So I do think it's really important to start there, because I think sometimes I find that people have, you know, been you know, sitting with the medication for a long time, that's causing a lot of appetite suppression. And there might be another option out there that causes less. And it's very random, you know, two medications that on paper can cause the same side effect don't, you know, don't always individually cause that same side effect, you know, for any, 
for you. So, so I do think that's really, really important because if it's extreme enough, it's, you know, there, there, there are ways to work around it by trying to push calories beginning of the day and end of the day and things like that. But my goal is to not have things be that extreme when I'm managing medication for sure. You know, the second thing to know is that you know, bodies try to self-regulate. So if eating issues are mild, meaning, you know, they're eating some during the day, but less than usual, um, most kids really will make up those calories. It almost goes back to the first thing. Like most kids, if the issues are mild, will make up the calories at the end of the day, in my experience. And as long as they're staying on their growth curve, it may look different, but it's not a health issue quite yet. Um, And then if that's not true, that goes back to my first statement, which is if it's so extreme that they're losing weight, maybe we have to reconsider which medication they're on. Yeah. Well, we've gotten questions from parents about teens, especially, who may not be eating all day long because their appetite is decreased and maybe they're getting involved with a lot of activities during the day. And then they binge eat at night or they get up in the middle of the night and eat. So we hear uh, that from parents quite a bit. Well, again, if we're focusing, I don't want to, you know, get into the emotional eating disorder side of that for the moment, you know, but in terms of just the medication, you know, I would still have the same starting point. Like if your appetite is so decreased, you're eating nothing all day long. And I'm not suggesting that everybody can get there, but certainly my first choice would be to start switching up the medication so that you're at least hungry enough to eat something. You know, that's, that's my starting point always. You know, the second thing is that because of, you know, general busy life, hyper-focus, poor planning, all those other things, some of those teens just need reminders. You know, it's just like you want you just have to be a little more structured about having snacks available, reminding them to have a snack. You know, it's harder with a teen, but many kids, um, I find it's like uh, their appetite's kicking in kind of as they're falling asleep and, you know, that can lead to some sleep issues. So you you just sometimes have to be a little structured about offering a snack. You know, like if you remind them beforehand, they might say like, oh yeah, I'm kind of hungry. So some of it has to do with that same sense of like adults sometimes have to provide extra structure to the lives of, you know, even teenagers with ADHD in that way. So, you know, I think really those are the two sides of managing it. On the one hand, trying to really question not not question if a child needs medication that's not what i'm saying but questioning whether that medication can be changed to something that affects appetite less and then the second thing really comes back to that broader concept we were talking about about just reinforcing habits and structure of just you know if it's important that somebody you know do a snack every time they get home from school or do a snack you know before bedtime so they can sleep through the night you know how can we create the external system that sort of reinforces that and make sure it happens most of the time Thank you. That's so helpful. Now, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to talk with us about? Um, I think we covered a lot. I, you know, I, I, just, I just think we should end with um, something that I think is foundational with ADHD and, um, and really part of mindfulness practice too, which is just recognizing, you know, there, there, again, I'll end by saying, you know, where I started with mindfulness of always look through the language, you know, just forget the terms can be a little wonky, but, you know, we're just trying to do our best to put words to an experience. You know, the, the reason mindfulness is often called non-judgmental awareness is because we're often looking at ourselves or looking through at life with just a lot of reactive judgment, you know, meaning, you know, it's not just that we made a mistake, it's that we're just, you know, lame and I should do, you know, I do this all the time and everybody else wouldn't and they're all looking at me and there's just this 
pile of judgment that gets carried on in life that just complicates things and makes it much worse. And that so so non-judgmental awareness just is is that we're trying to build this ability to you know just see things exactly as they are without all that extra. And when it comes to this entire concept of eating, much less parenting as a whole, you know, I just think it's important to recognize that it's hard for everybody. You know, we're all struggling in different ways with all of this. You know, everybody's got their stuff. So to say like, you know, when we step back, we're going to, you know, whatever word you use, practice mindfulness and like really just look at like what's actually going on here. You know, there's, there's a way to practice also self-compassion and not getting caught up in the judgmental side of it. You know, recognizing like we, I've been doing my best for years. This is just the habit I've fallen into. It's, you know, it's not so helpful anymore. I'm, you know, so I'd like to work on changing it and I don't have to blame myself for every time I, you know, do whatever it is that I've habitually done, you know, overeat or this, that, or the other thing. It's more because everybody does stuff like that. Everybody's got their thing. So that I think is an important part to bring to this discussion because it's so easy to feel judged when it comes to, you know, eating and eating habits and healthy lifestyle. Um, you know, so that there is a, that's all. I just wanted to end by saying, you know, everyone's doing their best and everyone has stuff to work on. Um, so, you know, recognizing that hopefully we can find the space to make some small changes that make our lives easier. Thank you so much, Dr. Burton. These are all very important points to remember. All right. Well, thank you again for being here. It's always great. Thank you for listening to this podcast supported by Tris Pharma, the makers of Liquid XR technology. Tris Pharma is committed to supporting the ADHD community through education and innovation. Learn more at www.trispharmaproducts.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chad's ADHD 365 podcast.